Welcome back to another episode of Tank Talks. I'm your host, Matt Cohen. And on this week's episode, we welcome Courtney McRae from Recast Capital to discuss how partners and funds like Recast are supporting emerging managers and underrepresented founders. Courtney shares her journey into the investment industry, shedding light on the inception of Recast Capital and the mission behind their Accelerate program. Throughout the episode, we'll explore the challenges women and underrepresented GPs face in raising venture funds and how Recast Accelerate is making a difference. Courtney gives us insights into the resources and services her platform provides to early stage women-led venture funds and how their support is benefiting their fundraising efforts. We dig into some of the success stories of women-led venture funds and founders from the underrepresented backgrounds who receive funding from the Accelerate program and hear some valuable advice from Courtney for aspiring venture capital fund managers who are seeking funding in these markets. Lastly, Courtney shares some key factors behind the success of emerging managers and ways they can prepare for due diligence with funds like Recast. But before we jump into this week's interview with Courtney McRae, we welcome back to the tank John Ruffalo to discuss the news and stories making headlines in the tech and venture capital ecosystem. Welcome back to the tank, John. We missed you. You had a great trip to Italy. I heard you solved the oil crisis. Is everything okay? Yes, I brought most of that oil back home with me. So okay, good. good. <laughs> so we have enough supply to last us another couple of years here in Toronto. Yes, yes. Canada, Canada is safe. safe. Well, Canada you safe. know, we obviously had a lot of things to talk about, but the biggest news is something that obviously you know near and dear to your heart is a company and a firm named Omer's Ventures is pulling out of Europe to focus on North America after only four years in the market. And obviously, as everyone's sort of refocusing their efforts on areas that make the most sense, it sounded like the team at Omer's wanted to shift their focus back to North America because that's where they believe they're positioned best, best to weather the current and future economic downturns and storms. You know, what are your thoughts on this? Did you see this coming? Did you think it was a little different about how they entered the European market? And, and give us some flavor here to this conversation. Yeah, I mean, I, I was a little disappointed and surprised uh, to see that, you know, as, as, as you probably recall in 2017, there was a very clear decision that was made to ensure that the franchise uh, had great flexibility as one region goes up, another region maybe going down, et cetera. And the globalization of Omer's ventures was really critical outside of North America. And there was a three-step process, one to the Valley, one to Europe, and one to Asia. And, you know, the only question is, when you do that, you should be careful on how hard do you push the pedal and when. Pushing a pedal down when prices at our peak and then selling, in essence, when prices are low is completely the opposite of what you would expect. So if anything, the time to place your bets in Europe and to solidify your team is now when everybody else is going away. So it's rather unfortunate and retrenching because the amount of energy and resources that you need to expand is 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 considerable. Uh, so once you retrench, it's very very difficult to re-expand again. Yeah, I mean, you know, after raising a 300 uh, euro fund, 300 million euro fund for European startups, and then a 750 million transatlantic fund to then sort of retreat back to just the North American roots and then opening up a New York office, you're right, it may feel like this is the right strategy today. But what happens if the European market starts to explode? Uh, and you are now having to re-enter 
you know, four years from now at, high prices. at higher prices, right? It's almost like a, a venture fund selling their winners in this current market below their previous valuation just to show DPI. Uh, but those may end up being your home runs four years from now and you end up, you know, not showing great returns. And it's not, and it doesn't seem to be a liquidity related issue. So I don't know about you, but uh, buying high and selling low, it's just really tough to make money that way. Yeah. And speaking of buying high uh, or buying low and hoping to sell high, you know, Canadian's very own Brookfield has partnered with storied firm Sequoia's Heritage Fund on a new fund to position to scoop up startups at a discount. I mean, this is amazing to see these two storied firms come together from two walks of life, creating an investment vehicle to capitalize on the plunging valuations of venture-backed companies. Uh, per the Financial Times, for our listeners, the two companies are investing $250 million US apiece, so a $500 million vehicle called Pine Grove Capital, led by Brian LeBow, who was the former co-head of North American Operations at Oak Tree, uh, credit fund, which is also interesting coming into the venture world now owned by Brookfield to invest in, uh, fledging tech startups that hopefully will not die, but obviously may see their valuations cut more than 50, 70%. What are your thoughts on this? Again, that's the time to go harder when, you know, prices are down. So that is quite sensible. You know, the part that I don't quite understand, you got Brookfield that has what, almost a trillion of assets. You have Sequoia that, I mean, at one point was at $80 billion. I don't know what it is right now. Coming and joining forces at $250 million each. Does that not kind of sound like a rounding error from a gentleman who I don't know? I'm sure a great, great track record from a credit background. It, it all doesn't make sense. What exactly are you really trying to do? We have you know a great firm in Canada called White Horse partners that just raised five billion dollars no one even knows who they are in canada and yet you know they've raised 10 times the amount more on lp stakes for sure but still i just try to compare and contrast those two yeah you're saying basically like is this really going to move the needle is this just a trade is this really going to be worth the squeeze for them when they've got so many assets under management, you got to wonder, maybe it's just partner capital and maybe it's not even LP capital. When I had $800 million of raised capital at Omer's Ventures in a pension fund that was $80 billion, the the common refrain was, oh, but Jesus, why are we even in this business? It will never move the needle. And this dwarfs that. Yeah, it's like the conversations of when you're a $10 billion fund and you've got a partner running a $100 million early stage vehicle within that bigger pie, how much airtime is that partner going to get at the conversations of the partner meeting trying to vie for a $10 million Series A investment, right? It's just like, how is this going to get the airtime that the rest of the people inside Brookfield and Sequoia really care to focus on? When it's such a small part, that's an interesting point that I should have, you know, brought up here. But again, how do you think this plays out in terms of are they going to be leading rounds? Are they going to be buying primary or secondary? Like, how do you think they're actually going to execute? Besides the fact whether or not it's worth their time. Yeah, when and, and then you know if they're buying the stakes, well, doesn't Sequoia do that as well? They'll come in and they'll do that. So I, I just didn't understand. And now Brookfield's got the Brookfield Ventures. But their ventures are, they're not early stage. They're a lot more late stage and they do things that are more related to the whole prop tech world. So I, I was just a little bit surprised. But again, 
the, the, the problem for a commentating perspective is I just don't know what the strategic imperative was. Yeah, the Brookfield Strategic Fund is a, like a corporate VC fund, right? And, and Sequoia's got a bunch of different funds. So the, the overlap just doesn't seem to mix right now. But as a commentator, you know, maybe we just don't know the whole story. You know, speaking of buying up assets, though, National Bank acquired Silicon Valley Bank's Canadian commercial loan portfolio at the beginning of August for what? What do we think they paid for a portfolio that had a billion dollars Canadian in loan commitments, of which, you know, $325 million were outstanding? And we know that the ClearCo loan was carved out from our understanding. So what do they pay for these assets? It was interesting how, you know, you get the billion dollar of commitment, you know, as the tagline. Well, the reality is that's meaningless because no one even knows that that's even really committed. And a lot of those commitments have already been taken over by other firms. So you've got 300-ish million dollars of let's just say loans that are one-time shots. Uh, the good news is and was it never made sense for someone who did not have a, a pre-existing team to service the loans to acquire because the cost would have been prohibitive. So it did make sense for an existing player to do this. What was interesting is how all of the other banks who particularly had big investments in the area all passed. The feeling was all of the great companies were already already got new lines of credits. They already got picked off by the RBCs and CIBCs of the world. So the question really is in my mind, what was that discount? And you know, it may have not been the C assets, which is probably the Clearco assets, and it may not have been the A's. So is it the B's and what sort of discounts? And all I could just guess is that discount became bigger and bigger as time went on. Right. So, you know, maybe you're saying is National Bank's Technology Innovation Banking Group is looking to buy maybe some relationships and also some goodwill in the market because all the other players, like you mentioned, CIBC, RBC, Scotia, they've already got the relationships. They've already got the the networks to be able to take over these uh, existing relationships of loans outstanding or provide new ones. And we also heard that the Silicon Valley Bank team is moving over to TD Bank. So they've also got their you know hat in the ring to be competitive. National might have been the only buyer really interested in acquiring the assets, would you say? Yeah, yeah. And but but you also had a, a you know Michael Denham, who was the former CEO of BDC, had joined them as a vice chair. Michael does understand this this market and you know, I'm going to guess that Michael had a significant influence role to play. And so if you're under scale, and again, these are not the C assets, but they're probably the B assets, it may have not been a bad strategy in order to get some scale for the bank. Huh, interesting. You know, one thing that I got to get your take on is how the hell does WeWork go from one of the highest flying startups to being completely cut off at the knees to trying to survive and then all of a sudden issuing this going concern doubt and shares dropping 70, 27%. Board members had, uh, had stepped down the other week. Uh, three board members had stepped down. You know, the company's obviously warning that they need to raise additional capital to keep the company afloat over the next 12 months. They cut their debt by about $1.5 billion and extended the date of some of those maturities. They're moving and shaking whatever way they can. But is this the end of WeWork finally? 
I got, I hope so. It was always the biggest piece of shit of a business model that I could never understand. And I'm going to do a little bit of a self-promotion alert here, but in 2013 or there, but I might be off by a year when, when I was at Omer's, I was on the executive team of Oxford. So I would hear, I, even though I wasn't an operator on there, I would go to the ELT meetings. And I remember in 2013 or thereabouts, uh, them mentioning that they just did their biggest deal up to that time and it was in Boston, and it was to sublease a number of buildings over to WeWork. And in my first, and everybody's kind of like cheering themselves. And I just said, "That is the dumbest idea I think I have ever heard." And it was just you could hear a pin drop. And they were like, "Well, why? Why you? Why would you say that?" And I just said, "This is a classic mismatch of a bank run." Now, because I'm an old guy. I have now seen my fourth uh, implosion of the tech sector, and you have a fixed long-term liability on one side of your books, and you have a short-term asset of a receivable of a flimsy tech startups. When the market implodes, and it will, it always has, what happens? And that was the question I asked. And you know what, what I was wrong on? How long it took for this ridiculous business model to finally implode. And then when it finally went public, I kept on saying, if you ever follow my LinkedIn, when is this turd going to go bankrupt? So in a way, the reason why, I mean, you're never happy to see any of this, but it actually helps me, it helps me make sense of the world when things make no sense and you're kind of racking your brains saying, what the hell am I missing? Well, you weren't missing anything other than the stupidity of investors to fork over money, particularly SoftBank, when nothing was there. Yeah. I mean, you definitely get uh, validation in how sol- uh, solving short-term problems with long-term debt is a terrible business strategy, and we all know that. Who are who come from you know the public markets world? You're never going to survive long enough when you are subjected to these you know volatile markets in the short term, but you have debt commitments that are over the longer term for you to uh, basically pay up for. And and what's interesting? So what what's the benefit of WeWork now? WeWork validated a long held flaw in the whole leasing model of owners of assets with these long-term lease, where particularly you have fast-growing companies where needs changed. It has changed that model forever. What I was expecting is someone's going to come up with the appropriate business model to satisfy that customer need. So we've got one leg of the stool or out of the two legs, I guess, done. Now let's wait for somebody to actually do the business model right. And that's going to be interesting. Well, I think also for your sake is this now removes the competition for dollars, capital into businesses that don't deserve it or shouldn't get it versus good quality companies and good founders that you and I both want to support. So I agree with you. We need to have these things happen to be able to wash out the crap and bring, you know, a sense of reality and common sense to what actually should be funded from a venture backable scale. Last thing I got to ask, got to go back to this AI piece. I don't know if you saw the news today, but Dialpad launched their Dialpad GPT, the first generative AI built for enterprises. 
Now, we all know that we think that AI can replace a lot of the call centers and a lot of the customer support communication tools out there. The question I have for you is, Dialpad said that they had trained their models on five years worth of conversational sales and customers' data. I find this absolutely abhorrent. Uh, who else said this? Oh, was it Zoom? Uh, Zoom, uh, Zoom, uh, Zoom will do this too. They changed their terms of agreement for this, yeah. This is when you get the regulators coming after folks going, you have just breached privacy. And this is now where I think these tech companies, this was the old Uber mentality is we don't care what the law is. We're just going to break things, et cetera. Like, knock it off, guys. But the breach of privacy, this is serious. And I do hope that regulators come right after companies like this extremely hard with no mercy because I think people have been in taking advantage of, you know, this is a basic affront to democracy and the right of privacy of citizens. We see this in the smart cities world, but I couldn't believe when I saw this. Yeah, I know. And, and you're hearing this probably from like the Dropbox or the Box.com world where your company documents are obviously going to be scraped and allow them to be indexed and searchable uh, using AI. It starts to get really hairy when you're thinking about, oh my God, all of my calls are being used to train something else, which means all of my data has been you know, scraped, but maybe it doesn't come back to me, but it sure helps make you worried about what else they can do with it. Well, and, and you saw, you know, our own, you know, Canadian icon, Margaret Atwood was one of the first people that wrote the open letter. And I had a long discussion with Margaret on this. They started to discover that a lot of the stuff that they wrote that is protected under copyright was being scraped in all of these dark websites. Where does this stop? Movies, uh, likenesses of actors, you know, this is part of the actor's strike. All of this nonsense has to be stopped on here or else why create anything creative anymore when it's just going to be stolen from you? Yeah, these are good questions that we'll have to solve on another episode. Uh, thanks for joining us, John. I appreciate it. Thanks. Now let's jump into the tank for this week's episode with Courtney McRae from Recast Capital. Thanks for joining us in the tank today, Courtney. Thanks for having me, Matt. You know, I really appreciate you taking the time to share your thoughts on the venture capital markets these days and how limited partners and funds like yours are assess- assessing the investment opportunities out there. But before we get started, I would love to give our audience a brief background on how you ended up in the investment industry and how you ended up launching Recast Capital and the Accelerator program alongside of it. Well, thank you. Um, yes, I started my career actually on the GP side, actually investing in private companies. And then more recently transitioned over to the limited partner side, the LP side. And so most relevantly for 10 years, I was one of three managing directors on the investment side of the house at a boutique venture capital fund of funds called WeatherGage. And at WeatherGage, we invested with brand name funds, but we always had an open door for those managers that we thought could produce outsized performance. And was very fortunate to be with some real thought leaders in the venture fund investing arena. Certainly, some established managers continue to stay relevant and put up exceptional performance. But increasingly, um, as the fund sizes get larger, it's harder to produce venture capital returns. And at the same time, we were very early to identify this new generation of 
really solo GPs that were rock star operators, had a brief angel investment track record, and now they were raising their first institutional funds. And so some of those, not all of those, but many of those managers, if proper due diligence is done and proper selection is done, they can actually put up far superior performance because they're raising right-sized funds and they're scrappy and hungry and well-networked with the entrepreneurs who matter. Uh, After being at WeatherGage for 10 years, I put up my own shingle, but I was passionate about the fact that institutional investors needed thoughtful, diversified exposure to emerging managers in venture to get the returns everyone's looking to get out of their venture portfolio and also to um, create the pipeline of the blue chip firms of tomorrow. And then finally, uh, the emerging manager community is so much more diverse than the incumbents. And so what percentage at WeatherGage did the emerging manager bucket start off as and what did it end up as at the time you left a decade later? So we did not have an official emerging manager bucket. We instead were just literally looking for the managers that we thought could produce well. We started with a sort of fund within a fund strategy because we thought the risk of this group initially was too great to give everyone a full bite size. But very quickly, we ended up giving everyone a full bite uh, that matured into that type of a role. Looking at the 100 funds that we invested in uh, during my 10 years there, roughly 60% of those relationships started with us investing in institutional funds one, two, one or two. We ended up repeat investing in subsequent funds for sure, but 60% of those relationships started at the really earliest stages of these um, firms' development. Yeah, it's funny. Everyone has this sort of understanding that emerging manager is the most risky because there's less data to go on. There's less you know, deliverables that they've already delivered on from prior funds for you to try to sink your teeth into. However, because their fund sizes are typically smaller and they're more hungrier to prove themselves to get to fund two and fund three, they end up outperforming. Whereas the ones who've been around for a decade or so, they kind of raise on their historical returns but there's no guarantee that those historical returns will produce future returns in the current funds that they're raising from today. Isn't that correct? That is correct. I mean, um, so sometimes is what happens with established managers, not always, but can happen, is that by raising larger funds, all of a sudden your investment strategy changes. And perhaps you're not as effective of a growth stage investor, you're a more effective early stage investor. And fund size really dictates uh, your strategy. The other issue that can sometimes happen is that the moneymaker at that established firm uh, leaves or is um, going through a divorce or is having being less involved uh, with the fund. And that can, re- that can result in lower performance for those vehicles. I will tell you that nobody wants to be a median investor in emerging managers in venture. Those numbers are not spectacular. Um, is what's really critical is being around emerging managers all the time so that you have a sense as to which ones are going to have the best potential to outperform. And so it is a different due diligence process um, and it's a different evaluation of, of who is a, a likely to be a top manager. Yeah, because you never know where the next great uh, manager or established manager is going to come from out of that emerging manager bucket. But if you have too many emerging managers, your returns will not look that great. But if you can pick off the best ones and then ride them for several funds, you may end up outperforming the asset class overall. Is that what you're saying? 
That is what I'm saying. Also, this group of managers has the potential of actually putting up exceptional performance. So if you have a number, if you in portfolio construction, you have a number that have exceptional performance, it'll offset the one or two that you get wrong. Right. So after a decade, you know, obviously, you know, split off to start your own fund called Recast Capital, which focuses exclusively on supporting emerging managers and venture capital. Can you kind of explain sort of how that came to be and how you and your partner decided on your focus and mission with Recast? Yeah. So my partner, Sarah Zolkowski, was at Greenspring and she saw the same thing I was seeing at WeatherGage. Many of these emerging managers with right-sized funds ended up putting up exceptional performance. And so uh, fund of funds, I think, are very hard. They deserve to exist in these areas that are hard to do. And it is hard to pick the best emerging managers, and it's hard to evaluate the best emerging managers. Sarah and I uh, launched Recast with this vision of creating a best of emerging managers in venture uh, fund of funds. But as a fund of funds, you cannot invest in every manager and you have to do your own diversification by underlying industry, by vintage year, by fund iteration. And so you end up saying no a lot more than you say yes. And you say no to really great managers uh, who might outperform, but for your own portfolio construction, you just can't say yes. We wanted to be more helpful to this community than what we could do through our investment vehicle. So we started by launching an educational platform to help emerging managers, to help diverse emerging managers be more successful in their fundraising. We started what we call our enablement program back in 2020, and we now have had 78 funds go through our program. Of the 78 funds, 78% of them have had at least one member of the senior investment team that identifies as a woman or non-binary and 58% have had at least one person of color. So very proud of those statistics. And then um, out of our educational program has come our latest endeavor, which we call Recast Accelerate. Recast Accelerate is a fiscally sponsored nonprofit Out of the gate, we will be offering 30 women this year, women in non-binary, this year who are early in their process to go through our educational program if they have not already, to receive six sessions of executive coaching uh, for free. And then in addition, we will pay $100,000 of their expenses, legal expenses, tech stack, tax audit. And uh, the idea here is to allow them to have more time in market because it is anecdotally, we found that it is roughly two to three times longer for women and people of color to raise their funds. So it literally just allows them more time to be able to be fundraising and perhaps even pay themselves something. Wow, that's incredible. And you know, it's very much aligned with what we've been doing at Ripple with our Ripple X Fellowship Program on the founder side, helping create the next generation of future founders and funders uh, on the underrepresented side. You know, but maybe let's talk about how you kind of focused in on this not only emerging manager bucket, but also this underrepresented women led emerging manager bucket. You know, talk to me about where the DEI stats were when you started looking at the industry and venture were, and how is it starting to change and how the recast accelerate model by providing education and financial support will hopefully lead to better examples of how performance is tied to these types of offerings. 
When I was a general partner at a growth equity fund, you could count the number of women who were at venture funds on two hands. Uh, it, it was anemic. And fast forward to today, when we launched Recast, uh, we actually went about trying to anecdotally identify what percentage of the emerging managers were diverse. It blew my mind. It was um, 60% of the managers that we found um, online that were emerging managers fit our criteria for diversity, which was senior investment team members. Members and by the way, love the work you're doing at uh, at Ripple to try and increase the diverse population as well. This community is so much more diverse, and we just believe the data. I mean, Harvard Business School did a study that it increases uh, returns by roughly 200 basis points uh, if you have diversity of live life experiences, networks, points of view. You see opportunities, you get access to opportunities that others don't, and also in 2023. Seed stage syndicates, it's easier to get in to the extent that you're more diverse uh, in these syndicates. We really launched uh, these initiatives with the idea of let's make more women and people of color successful in their fundraising. They will then prove that um, people of color and people of different um, ethnicities and genders produces superior returns. And that will in turn change institutional LPs perspective on who is backable and the archetype that they are looking for backing will change. And in addition, you will end up seeing more diverse entrepreneurs receiving funding because there's more of an open aperture for diverse founders within this ecosystem. Yeah. I mean, obviously it's like the ripple effect happening from your decisions to help others raise capital and learn about raising capital to then going, deploying that capital and then seeing those companies come back. But it takes a lot of time, right? Like these things are not uh, fast moving projects. They take a long time. You know, what sort of early successes have you seen or examples of successes come out of the Recast Accelerate program where you've helped women-led funds and founders from underrepresented backgrounds receive funding? It does take a while. You need to produce the actual returns in order to have change. Um, I will say, though, in the last 13 years, we've seen a lot of change, uh, and it's moving in the right direction. I will say that for our Accelerate program, it's more anecdotal. We are not asking people to to report on their fundraising success, in part because it would bias us in terms of who we led into the program. But we do see improvements that have happened within this group. In particular, it's a lonely business being an emerging manager. Uh, Usually you're a solo GP. Sometimes you have a partner and you feel like you're the first person who's run into obstacles in fundraising and fundraising challenges. So the community we found really value getting to know other emerging managers in venture, to be able to share frustrations, share obstacles they've run into, and realize that they're not alone in this process. Um, So that's very valuable. Sarah and I also get great feedback that we demystify the limited partner process and demystify the agendas and why certain LPs ask certain questions and other LPs ask other types of questions. And what's the right LP archetype for your size fund and your strategy of fund? And then finally, the executive coaching is incredibly well-reviewed. Again, it's a lonely business uh, being a emerging manager raising a fund. 
and having a third party that you can share your concerns or your hesitations or imposter syndrome or how do I get work-life balance is really valuable to this community. Right. Especially for uh, maybe professional women who are also trying to raise families and being a solo manager, like it must be very, very hard being alone, but having an executive coach must make it very helpful. You know, we have executive coaches that work with our team as well. Oh, that's great. Yes. And men also like to actually be active uh, family members. Right. (laughs) I am too right now about to have my second child and I know how stressful it is trying to raise a family, working from home and also raising our fund three. So those are great programs. You know, besides all the different things that you offer, before you let someone into the program, what are you evaluating them on and what do you look for for someone to become potentially the next great industry leading franchise? So it's certainly more of an art than a science. Uh, To your point, you don't have uh, 15 years of track record to look at. But really, we're looking for people that have a background that's relevant for the entrepreneurs who matter. Either you are well-networked with an entrepreneurial community that we think is well-positioned to outperform, or you're adding value to this ecosystem in a way that we haven't heard or we think is unique or valuable. Having some sense that you have good investment judgment. Um, It could be that you have an angel track record and you have interesting companies that you have backed already, or you have interesting... Um, co-investors or follow-on investors that we respect. Not the holy grail, but certainly is an indication that other people we respect, like these companies, is valuable. Having a thoughtful perspective on why you're doing what you're doing and why you're the right person to do what you're doing is very important to our evaluation. And these need to be individuals that we're supporting that we believe have the staying power and are going to make ultimately become great venture capitalists and continue to be in the business. Yeah. I mean, there that uh, Samir Kaji post about the why, you know, why you're starting a venture fund is something that, you know, we took to heart and I wrote a, a blog post about the why we started Ripple. Um, and I think every emerging manager should do that uh, because it is very different for everyone. But also that like long-term bet on yourself, the, the Warren Buffett quote, nobody wants to get rich slow. And in an venture, it's exactly that. I mean, unless you're raising a $50 million or $100 million fund one and you're a solo GP with like limited expenses, yeah, you can make some really good money on the fees. But I really just don't look at that. That's a short-term gain. How are you advising emerging managers to think about building their franchise, their platform, and their name for the long-term and not get caught up in the raise a big fund and have a nice juicy management fee every year coming your way? So one of the pieces of advice that we always give is uh, if you talk to 100 LPs, you'll get 100 different recommendations on how to change your firm. And so it's really important up front to identify who are you, what are your, what's your portfolio construction, what's your follow-on investment strategy, and what do you want this to be? And really be thoughtful. Do you want a large firm with a lot of GPs? Do you want to always be a solo GP? Do you want to eventually bring on another, another GP? Do you want to bring in junior people? What is your strategy? What works best to your strengths? And usually these managers are Uh, Not always, but usually they are focused on having a right-sized fund and not the goal of not having a billion-dollar fund down the the road. Sometimes with the right personality and the right background and the right investment strategy, perhaps it's larger, but you need to have an articulate way to say why 
it makes sense for you to be investing that larger amount of capital. And as I said earlier, you end up moving into a different area of investment uh, unless you um, bring on additional partners to focus on it. So we're always being thoughtful about our feedback on portfolio construction and the vision as to where these firms are going to go. And I agree with you. It can be a fool's game to be raising larger and larger funds just because you can, because that's when the returns start to become more muted. Not always, but often. I mean, Fred Wilson obviously has made it work very well with quite limited size funds, even though they can raise a lot more at Union Square. But uh, that being said, you know, you sit in a mi- in the middle of an interesting spot. Being a fund to fund, you have your own LPs, but you are also an LP. What are the LPs that you're talking with and fundraising from telling you about what their strategy has changed from into with the current volatility in the markets we're seeing? The markets have definitely pulled back especially high net worth individuals have pulled back their investing in emerging managers, which is a struggle for many emerging managers. Institutional investors understand that these environments typically are where you've seen outperformance in part because fundraising is hard. And so to the extent they don't have a denominator effect issue, the most forward leaning institutional investors are active in this market. They are actively deploying with managers that they believe have the staying power through this downturn. The other thing that's really interesting, uh, having been through now many uh, market corrections, this one was not because of the venture industry. And right before this market correction, all of the brand name venture funds backed up the truck and raised mind-numbing amounts of capital. Uh, They raised not only larger main funds, they raised opportunity funds, they raised growth equity funds, and they're sitting on a lot of dry powder. Now, they're waiting to deploy that capital. The pace of investment has slowed tremendously, but at some point, either they have to give back that money or they're going to have to start deploying it. And I believe they're going to start deploying it and they'll do it thoughtfully and in the companies that deserve to get it. But I think that's a very different dynamic than we've seen in the past. Uh, And so I do think those managers that are investing at the pre-seed, the seed, and the earliest stages of these companies, as long as they raise enough capital at that stage to get them to the Series A, I believe the money's going to be there. I mean, time will tell. Especially the players who are uh, active investors in venture funds, like brand name venture funds, the most sophisticated investors have seen over the last 13 years that a disproportionate percentage of the top 10 best performing venture funds in any vintage year are institutional funds one, two, or three. And if I'm writing a really large check, I cannot write a $5 million check or a $10 million check into an emerging manager, even though I know those managers are some of the best performing managers looking back over the last 10 years. They are looking to folks like ourselves and others like us who are investing in emerging managers to get that access, to be able to identify through our portfolios those managers that perform exceptionally well. And then their goal is to get to those, invest directly in those managers once they get to a size or a proven point where they can invest their capital directly into these managers. Yeah, it's interesting. It's kind of counterintuitive. Like you want to be contrarian in a market like this because you know that's when real returns are generated. But also being double contrarian going into a emerging manager fund two or fund three, even though that's where the data showed the best returns are, is very hard for the LPs to stomach in this type of market. And so they're using, you know, recast as a conduit 
to get access and diversity to that asset class and that riskier asset, emerging manager bucket, without actually taking on that much risk is essentially what you're saying, right? That is what I'm saying. I mean, a diversified pool of emerging managers is a lot less risky than a one-off investment in an emerging manager. So that that's really what we offer and then offer the insight into which managers are actually generating that outperformance, I think is very valuable to this community. Uh, when I was at WeatherGage, we had a, a relationship with the city and county of San Francisco. And San Francisco has a very sophisticated venture portfolio, but they understood that Often it's these emerging managers that are hard to identify, hard to access, and their check size is too large. And so that's what, one of the things that really educated me on these large investors really having a challenge of how to, how to get exposure to this group of managers. Yeah. I mean, you see the headlines with like CalPERS doubling down on venture exposure, but like they can't write LP checks into emerging manager funds. Their minimum check size is probably like 50 or a hundred million dollars. So like, what are they going to do to get access to that bucket? Are they going to have to go through a recast? Like you must be having conversations with those large, you know, endowment style firms, aren't you? That's exactly the point. They are, the CalPERS and CalSTRS do care very dearly about this part of the market. And yet, to your point, it's very hard for them to access it. And the the challenge, of course, is their check sizes to make a to move the needle on their portfolio is quite large. It's a matter of do you, do you start with a hundred million dollars separate account, even though that doesn't even move the needle on your portfolio? Um, so it's very challenging, especially for those largest public pensions to access this market. Yeah, I mean, three x DPI on a fund for them, you know, hundred to three hundred, still nothing for them. It's nothing. You know, it's a drop. It's a couple in the ocean. basis points, exactly. You mentioned something about how it's not venture's fault that we've had this, you know, market uh, recalibration, uh, and it's you know obviously not our industry's fault that we've got all these companies that are now potentially falling to the wayside. But we do seem to garner a ton of the headlines. And a ton of the media attention is focused on a lot of the overfunding in AI and previously the overfunding in crypto. You know, how do you approach that risk management and due diligence when evaluating potential investment opportunities and explain that to LPs that are looking to invest through you? Yeah. So I, I will tell you that I was waiting for this market correction for about seven years. When you see the hedge fund managers start accessing the late stage venture, you know that you've jumped the shark. It is good for venture returns to have the market corrected. It is good for the venture market to have me too companies not getting backed. It creates static in the market. Um, you want the best company to win. You want the best company to get the funding and you don't want competition from the the number two company, the number three company, the number four company. So all that I think is very positive. I continue to believe that the earliest stages of venture investing continues to be very interesting. That's where you're paying the lowest valuations. And with the tsunami of capital that is available later stage, I do believe that it is lower risk than what people perceive it to be. I've always believed that the later stage, very high valuations is where when you invest at 10 million pre and the company's now valued at 5 billion and the valuation goes down to 100 million, you're still in the money as a $10 million uh, investor. And if you're in at 5, five billion, um, you're underwater, especially if there aren't terms and there were no terms over the last few years. So um, I continue to believe in the seed stage and the um, Series A. I continue to believe that there's adequate capital later stage to the extent that these businesses need it to get to an exit. 
Yeah. I mean, we couldn't agree more, obviously, being early stage investors. I think the other thing that's going in our favor is that the cost efficiency of building companies now has been you know, greatly diminished because of uh, the uses of co-pilots and AI and Gen AI technologies. You know, our companies are cutting headcount, but still growing 200% year over year, which is incredible. You never used to see that. It was, you know, you were trying to put $4 in and get $1 out from a you know, early stage venture uh, model. But now you can put $2 in, maybe $1 in and get $2 out, which is incredible. And that's where we're seeing a lot of our companies benefiting from at the earliest stage. I think we'll reach a point where hopefully uh, a seed or series A company truly skips those growth rounds and just goes right into potential profitability or some other path. And the other thing I think we're seeing too, which I'd love to get your thoughts are, is how the corporate VCs and the strategic investors are filling the gap right now that larger uh, established growth equity firms were playing a couple of years ago. I mean, we see Google and NVIDIA basically leading or co-leading every single AI uh, Series A, Series B deal in the market in the last month or two. You know, what are your thoughts on how the, the growth equity market has changed in, from a landscape perspective and where do you think it will be over the next several years? I, I think it's a positive development having uh, corporate VCs coming in and filling that gap in the growth equity market. They are the logical investors at that space, right? Because they need to get access to this technology to grow their business. They're potential acquirers of these companies. And their return profile is more growth equity, right? They're they're looking not for return necessarily at, at that stage. They're looking for market intelligence. They're looking for access to technology for their for their core business. So I think that's a very attractive development in this space. And, you know, I, I think it's, um, you know, the buy versus build. I have respect for organizations that identify that they need to look outside their their four walls and see what's coming from the thought leaders in the field uh, who have spun out of their firms and from others uh, to create the latest technology. So I'm a big fan of that corporate VCs coming in, and they also are very good investors in many emerging managers to try and get access to these portfolio companies. And do you think corporate teams are interested in what you're doing, both from a financial returns and a substantial change uh, aspect in the venture industry? So they are interested. I'll say the challenge for corporate VCs with engaging with Recast is they want they don't want that other layer. They want to directly have exposure to these emerging managers because they want to have insights into their portfolio companies. They also are not looking for a diversified portfolio of emerging managers because they're very specifically only looking for companies in which their, their own business touches. They tend to want to have direct access to the emerging managers. So we more get them involved with our educational program and uh, with uh, talking to our, our community that's gone through our educational program. What type of reporting and information do you think makes most sense for firms like yours who are interested at potentially making a commitment to a fund in the future before you actually committed? What types of things do you like to see? Co-investment opportunities, quarterly reports, AGM invites? What is it you like to see? We like to have transparent communication. I like inf informative quarterly letters, informative annual letters. Timely reporting is very valuable to a fund of funds. I do think the hygiene of having an AGM, whether it's on Zoom or in person, is very helpful. I think it's helpful to the GP. If you're going to be out there raising another fund, having your LPs, having your advisory board really know 
how you're doing, using it as a marketing opportunity is very valuable to the GP. So I do think that's a valuable part of, and then I think it's important to be talking to your LPs if you can't do it quarterly because it's too big of a lift, um, especially your larger investors, you should be seeing them and they should be seeing you twice a year uh, at a minimum, uh, ideally quarterly. Perhaps that could be a bigger lift for some managers. Right. And what about new LPs looking to join the asset class? How do you suggest new investors or new LPs think about investing in the venture capital markets and how do, should they think about mitigating risk in the early days while trying to capture the upside in today's market? Well, I think working with a fund of funds like Recast Capital is always a great way to start because part of our business is educating our LPs, uh, those that are newer to this space, helping them to understand how we diligence, how we think about portfolio construction, leveraging our GP relationships and, and figuring out how we diligence these funds, I think is very valuable. That being said, going to conferences being a listener for a while, I think is very valuable. Podcasts like yours uh, and others, a very valuable way of getting up to speed on the space. And going to you know emerging manager conferences like Raise or Bridge, getting involved with our educational program so you can hear pitches from managers, you can hear what differentiated approaches are, is very valuable. And then also you know t- networking with other LPs who are investing in venture funds. I find it to be a very collaborative community you know, getting best practices from others who have been doing it for a while, I think is good practice. Yeah. I think one of the best things that we've done from a fundraising standpoint is after having a first call with a new potential LP, before having that second follow-up call, we offer them up three of our existing LPs as potential uh, reference checks, just to make sense of like whether or not this is the right potential conversation then for them to go deeper on. Uh, I think LP references are very important. And I think we as an industry should be pushing for more of them because it also spreads the word on what other opportunities those LPs considered before making a commitment to a fund like ours. And I think that's important to know what other options are out there because let's face it, LPs are faced with so much opportunity especially these days, that it's hard to sift through the noise. And starting with a fund to fund like yours is a great way to learn the asset class, get a sense of what your due diligence process looks like so they can maybe replicate it if they start to see their own direct opportunities. Um, So I think that's great. You know, one question I'd love to ask is, what's the best career advice you've ever received from another LP in in the space? So I have to say, I've not gotten great advice from other LPs. I've gotten my best advice from founders I've worked with. You know, I've got a couple of real gems. Uh, One of them was, you're never a founder until you have to be. You don't actually become a CEO of an early stage company until you have no other options. And I have come around to actually believe this is true. I had job offers when I left WeatherGage and I kept thinking, oh, I could do that, but I really don't want to do that. Oh, I could do that, but ah, I don't really want to do that. And so finally I said, you know what? I, I ran into my partner, Sarah. We were connect, reconnected through another network. And I said, you know what? I have to be an entrepreneur. I have to start Recast Capital because this doesn't exist. And this is what I have to do. You know, you, you don't become a founder until there's no other option, no other career options. <laughs> yeah. I mean, look, you're a startup founder too, starting your own firm. I guess, you know, question is what motivates you to keep doing what you're doing? Oh, I have to tell you, we, so our educational program is, is free started by Pivotal Ventures, Melinda Frenchgate's uh, investment office. Um, And then we now do it all through sponsorship dollars. And at the end of each of our 12-week educational programs, which all are on Zoom, 
we uh, have our, what we call our fill the bucket moment. That's when we ask for feedback from our community, all the emerging managers who've gone through our educational program. And we ask them, what did you like? What could we have done better? That's really what keeps us going every day. It's um, getting the feedback from this community that it's been incredibly valuable going through this educational program, Incredible, val- incredibly valuable uh, getting to know other emerging managers, to fine-tune their fundraising strategy, to refocus their LP outreach, and, and to understand the feedback they've been getting from LPs or the, frust- the frustrations they've been having with predominantly high net worth individuals who are investing in their funds. Getting that kind of feedback is very valuable. And that's that's what keeps us going. And then ultimately is what keeps us going is putting generating outsized returns for our investors. But as you have articulated, it takes a while for that to happen. Yeah, I'd say there's like short-term motivation, long-term motivation. I'd say for us, the same thing. Long-term motivation, outsized return being the best premier early stage venture fund. But in the short term, like you said, like when we started the fellowship program, it was our own management fees going to fund it because we had no sponsors. We had no, you know, not-for-profit structure or anything. It was just us putting our own money and support behind something. But as soon as you start seeing those students, you know, sending you emails or handwritten cards, thanking you for giving them an opportunity or being stopped at a conference and getting a hug from a student who graduated with a job now working in venture. And then even with this podcast, you know, getting stopped by people being like, Hey, I love it. I'm like, I can't believe you listen to my voice every week. You know, those are the moments that allow you to stay motivated to continue to do it. Uh, And it's so fortunate to have you in our industry supporting underrepresented founders and emerging managers to be the next great leaders and great franchises of venture capital. You know, before we wrap things up, we always like to ask our guests for their fast favorites. So first off, your favorite podcast. Oh, it has to be Tank Talks. Oh, come on. Give me another. (laughs) You do great work for the community and for the entrepreneurs and for us. So thank you for what you do. I appreciate that. Okay. Favorite newsletter or blog? Oh, it has to be recast. We do a great newsletter and it actually, um, I encourage all emerging managers to subscribe to it because we do a great, what I believe is a great section of these are the upcoming events that um, you should keep in mind and consider attending. Yeah, it's a great one. Uh, And next is your favorite tech gadget. Old school, iPhone. I couldn't live without it. (laughs) And uh, next is your favorite new trend. I think that technology disrupting legacy industries is a game changer. So would you mean like AI or just like machine learning or where would you go with that? AI is a little overinflated at this point, um, but certainly AI is a new technology that is going to infiltrate everything. But there are other technologies that are advancing legacy industries like construction, like printing. Yeah, 100% agree, which is areas that we love to focus on. Uh, And next is your favorite book. Uh, I just got done reading Grit. It teaches you about the importance of having grit, having resilience. It can allow you to achieve things that you didn't, you couldn't otherwise achieve. Sticking with it, having grit, having perseverance is incredibly valuable to success. That's a perfect tee up for the last one, but your favorite life lesson. Be your true self and the rest will come. Absolutely. Well, thanks so much for joining us in the tank today with Courtney McRae, partner at Recast Capital. Thank you, Matt. Thanks for listening to another episode of Tank Talks. To learn more about this episode, be sure to go to Apple Podcasts or Spotify to find more detailed notes on this episode or to check out previous episodes. Also, if you enjoyed this episode, please leave us a review and a rating as it helps us out a lot. And hit that subscribe button so you can get notified when new episodes come out. Finally, make sure to give me a follow on Twitter at Matty B. Cohen or at Tank Talk Podcast to stay up to date on new episodes or to be a guest on our show. 
Till next time.